Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right. Thank you for joining us for this presentation. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, a doctoral program, and two new online master of arts programs. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu or to support the work of IWP, please visit iwp.edu donate. This lecture is a part of the 12th Annual Kosciuszko Chair Spring Symposium in honor of Lady Blanca Rosensteel. We'll be hearing from Dr. Marek Hodakiewicz. Dr. Hodakiewicz holds the Kosciuszko Chair of Polish Studies at the Institute of World Politics and leads IWP's Center for Intermarium Studies. At IWP, he also serves as a professor of history and teaches courses on contemporary politics and diplomacy, geography and strategy, mass merger prevention and failed and failing states, and Russian politics and foreign policy. He is the author of Intermarium, The Land Between the Black and Baltic Seas, and numerous other books and articles. He holds a PhD from Columbia University and has previously taught at the University of Virginia in Loyola Marymount University. Dr. Hodakiewicz, welcome and thank you for joining us. I will talk about channeling Stalin today, unscrambling Russian propaganda in Ukraine lately. In Ukraine, Russia has presently redeployed a trusty Soviet propaganda trope, liberation from Nazism. This narrative is, of course, mendacious, yet every lie contains a kernel of truth. Our objective here is to extract it and put it in its proper context. We shall consider liberation and Nazism separately. Liberation from Nazism is a standard Soviet trope originating in World War II. However, Moscow also lustily employed it during the crushing of the Polish Poznan uprising in June 1956, Hungarian insurrection in November 1956, and the Czechoslovak upheaval in August 1968. In fact, throughout its history, the USSR justified its imperialist aggression invariably in terms of bringing liberty and annihilating evil. Usually the target was fascism, Nazism, Hitlerism, but there were derivatives such as imperialism, oppression, and so forth. Often the Soviets would refer to their actions as rendering fraternal assistance. All those propaganda threats are present today in the war in Ukraine. A more sophisticated iteration of liberation from Nazism focuses on the Western public, while its cruder form targets domestic Russian audiences. However, before delving into the essence of Moscow's current insidiousness, we should revisit the original propaganda matrix of the Second World War. It is true that in 1945, the Soviet Union's Red Army and the NKVD obliterated Germany's Wehrmacht and the SS on the Eastern Front. But Stalin did not liberate anyone. Instead, the Soviet dictator enslaved everyone in the lands his armies conquered. 
for to liberate means to bring liberty. The Soviet dictator did no such thing. More precisely, Stalin replaced Hitler as the occupier. The Soviets re-enslaved the slaves of the German Nazis. A red totalitarianism substituted for the brown one. From the point of view of the majority populations in some places like the Baltics, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Romania, the Red Army's arrival augmented terror much more horrible than what the Germans had wrought. On the other, uh, in, in other lands, say Poland and Yugoslavia, the Soviet occupation was less ruthless than the German had been. That is not to say it was mild, it was simply not as bloody as the Nazi one, which is no reason to rejoice. Of course, there were regional variations even within the same country. Take Czechoslovakia, for example. The Soviet dominion over Slovakia was harsher than the German overlordship. The Czech experience was initially relatively mild under Stalin. An important qualification here is that none of this applies to the Jewish minority. According to the Third Reich's racialist fantasies, the Jewish people were slated for complete extermination. The Germans failed to kill them all, but not for lack of trying. Certainly, other captive people suffered horribly, the Poles in particular, as well as Eastern Slavs, Ukrainians, and Belarusians. They died in their millions, but their annihilation, percentage-wise, never reached the total proportions of their societies as it did with the Jewish people. Can we therefore talk about Jewish liberation? Yes, we can, but only in Western Europe. Western allied war aims were crystal crystal clear. They were laid out in the Atlantic Charter of August 14, 1941. As original signatories, both the United States and Great Britain pledged themselves to a restoration. The Allies promised to restore Europe to the status quo ante. That entailed overturning totalitarianism and restoring pre-war borders, including Polish ones. Prime Minister Winston Churchill and President Franklin D. Roosevelt pledged to restore freedom and democracy. They kept their word to a limited extent in Western Europe only. In the central and eastern part of the old continent, the Allied leaders permitted Stalin to keep keep his ill-gotten territorial gains, expand them, and foist communism upon Moscow's captive peoples. Western Europe was lucky. The liberating American, British, and Polish armies virtually everywhere brought freedom and democracy back. That also entailed property restitution. The Germans routinely confiscated the properties of emigres who continued the struggle, and especially Jewish property as per Nazi ideology. All Jews were expropriated under the rule of the Third Reich before most of them were murdered. In general, stolen Jewish and other property accrued to the German state and, in certain countries, to the native collaborationist regimes. In most cases, the state kept the properties, particularly large industrial enterprises. However, regular properties, such as small shops, apartments, etc., were either leased or rented to new tenants. The German, or collaborationist 
state remained the owner. In some cases, the state permitted the sale of petty Jewish and other properties to new owners. In other cases, some properties were simply awarded to leading supporters of the Nazi for collaboration with regime. When the United States liberated Western Europe, it did restore not only democracy and sovereignty to France, Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, but also reversed the Third Reich's property arrangement. Simply, there was wholesale restitution of the system, including as far as individual property holders were concerned. Private property is at the root of individual liberty. America understood it well. It insisted that sovereignty, democracy, and freedom included respect for private property. Newly liberated Western European countries concurred. Sure, property restitution measures, returning real estate and other items to the rightful, primarily Jewish, owners, triggered gripes, unrest, and even demonstrations here and there, for example, in France and the Netherlands. But it didn't matter. The United States brought liberty back, and liberty requires justice. The opposite was the case with the Soviet Union's conquest of Central and Eastern Europe, the Intermarium. Since the objective was enslavement, Stalin naturally eschewed any restoration. There would be no sovereignty and no democracy restored. As for private property, the communists were hostile to it from the start. However, so long as the Soviets feigned moderation for the benefit of the West in the newly conquered lands, some property restitution took place. It mainly concerned petty properties previously confiscated by the Germans. Simply, pre-war low-level judges who survived the carnage and local non-communist magistrates were rather sympathetic to property restitution. Justice dictated that houses, apartments, shops, and other items be returned. Property registers favored such verdicts. However, communist rulers at higher levels invariably opposed any property restitution, including Jewish property. Finding the Soviet system of occupation, of occupation hostile, many Jewish owners sold their reclaimed properties and fled to the West. Jews and their Gentile neighbors suffered iniquities and economic deprivation under Stalin because the Soviet dictator refused to restore democracy and sovereignty in the conquered lands. In Poland, for example, the NKVD and the Red Army annihilated the Polish underground state and its clandestine home army, an allied force which had fought the Germans for five long years. Thus, the Soviets destroyed a free government in its administration. The Polish insurgents, thus betrayed, reacted by resisting the Soviet occupation with arms in their hands. This, in turn, further destabilized Poland and obliterated the law and order that the Polish underground state had briefly maintained in the wake of the retreat of the murderous Germans. An anti-communist insurgency made life even more dangerous for everyone. Similar developments occurred in the Baltics, Belarus, Ukraine, and the Balkans. Everyone, including Jewish citizens, was prevented from exercising his and her fundamental human rights to liberty, property, and pursuit of happiness. Instead, 
Soviet totalitarian slavery afflicted everything everywhere that Red Army appeared. That included mass rape, mass arrests, mass torture, mass executions, and mass deportations. Granted, they were less extensive than the German terror previously. Nonetheless, tens of thousands lost their lives for active and passive and violent and non-violent resistance to communism. Millions of women were raped. Many hundreds of thousands were shipped off to the Gulag, including over 100,000 from Poland alone, joining millions of victims of earlier deportations. Needless to say, the victorious U.S. forces inflicted nothing like this on Western Europeans before or after the Third Reichs surrendered, not even on the vanquished Germans who instead became undeserving beneficiaries of the Western Allied mercy. This was the exact opposite, opposite of what was obtained in liberated Western Europe. Since Central and Eastern Euro Europe was enslaved, there was neither justice nor peace. So much for the myth of Stalin's liberation. And let us now move on to the rest of the story. <coughs> let us consider Nazism in Ukraine. President Vladimir Putin has vowed to denazify Ukraine. Hence, he means that Ukraine is somehow Nazi. To understand the Kremlin's narrative, we must go back to the Second World War and even earlier. First, we must understand the word Nazi or fascist and Hitlerite has been infinitely flexible in Moscow's vocabulary. Initially, Lenin and his Comintern viewed Italian fascists as socially friendly, if confused, revolutionaries. They should be wooed and co-opted by the communists. Then in 1922, Mussolini seized power. The fascists and fascism became a primary threat to communism. As a socialist-like phenomenon, the fascists poached supporters from various social democratic groups, including even the communists. Germany's National Socialist Workers' Party, NSDAP, operated in a similar manner and targeted a similar working class base of support while invoking socialism, nationalism, and fascism. Fascism as a generic term of opprobrium became Stalin's favorite invective. Nazis and Italian fascists were viewed as prim primary competition for the soul of the masses, but mass movements were equated with the followers of Hitler and Mussolini. Thus, social democrats who opposed communism became social fascists. The worshippers of Trotsky were branded Hitler or Trotskyites and so forth. The civil war in Spain was between fascism and democracy, of course, a brilliant simplification. It would be too confusing to call it instead, as it really was, a clash of a broad military-led coalition of nationalist radicals, conservatives, and monarchists on the one hand, and a communist-controlled alliance of leftist and liberal forces, including socialists, anarchists, and progressives on the other. Thus, Stalin was a Democrat, and Franco a fascist. The label of Fascism or Nazism is short and sweet. It is 
eminently marketable both in the West and in Russia. In the West, as mentioned, the purveyors of the Kremlin's propaganda tap into uh, the pre-existing Western thought patterns. Since most of us have heard about the Nazis, usually in the context of the Holocaust, we tend to associate Nazism with supreme evil by default and by reflex. Score one for the Kremlin and its campaign to influence the West. On the domestic front, at home in Russia, Moscow deploys similar, similar cliches, but in a cruder manner, by deluging the Russian people with messages that the Russian armies are liberating the Ukrainians from Nazism, Putin stirs powerful emotions connected to the myth of the Great Fatherland War or the Great Patriotic War, 1941-1945 for Russia. The Nazis attacked innocent Soviets who mobilized themselves for the defense of their country and prevailed over Hitler. More in the process, the victorious Soviet troops liberated Eastern and Central Europe from Nazism. Not only did great Stalin defeated the Nazis, but he also annihilated their native collaborators in the conquered satellite states of Eastern and Central Europe. The righteous hunt for Nazi collaborators continued during and after the war. The collaborators, of course, were real and imagined. Anyone between an arrow cross stalwart, conservative Christian Democrat, or a left-wing uh, agrarian populist in Hungary. Anyone who displeased Stalin qualified, including the Polish Home Army, a fascist outfit, naturally. A fascist outfit. This liberationist and anti-Nazi narrative remains nearly universal in the Russian uh, Federation today. It uniformly triggers a mass reaction, sometimes bordering on hysteria, that is both, both elated and prideful on the one hand and angry and unforgiving on the other. This complex effusion no longer targets Germany, though it can, if appropriately channeled, but instead focuses on domestic traders like the Balts or the Ukrainians. Whenever Moscow's thinnest skin suffers from, say, an Estonian celebration of its struggle for freedom, invectives of fascism fly. Hence, for every Soviet tank liberator monument and for every Red Army soldier, aka unknown rapist sculpture toppled in Estonia or Latvia, the Russians have a ready stream of venom. Fascists or Nazi collaborators. And who were the native collaborators? Broadly speaking, anyone who opposed or merely disagreed with the communists was tarred a Hitlerite, fascist, or Nazi. This invective could be stretched to embrace anyone from socialists through progressives and Christian Democrats all the way to conservatives and monarchists. Genuine native nationalist radicals were also included under the rubric, the rubric of fascists, perhaps with some justification, but not all of them had been Nazi collaborators. Poland stands out here as a shining exception. It's hard right Christian nationalist, national party and national radical camp 
disproportionately sustained the greatest losses of all Polish political orientations. This concerned anti-German and anti-Soviet underground struggle, mass execution, and concentration camps, including Auschwitz. No political collaboration occurred whatsoever. However, the issue of collaboration is more problematic outside of Poland. Virtually all other Central and Eastern European governments allied themselves with the Third Reich during the Second World War. They cooperated because they thought Hitler a lesser evil than Stalin. Also, some, Hungary and Bulgaria, hoped Germany would set border disputes between them straight to undo the verdict of the First World War. Others, Romania wished for the Nazis to guarantee their post-1918 borders against their predatory neighbors. In, Yugoslav in Yugoslavia, there were collaborations pro-Nazi and even SS formations among the Muslim Bosniaks and others. A collaborationist Croat state emerged. Even the Serbs were split between loyalists of the monarchist government in exile and local collaborating administration. The Czech civil service subordinated itself to the Germans and after 1942 broke with the Czech authorities in exile who, advo who advocated armed struggle, considered suicidal by their compatriots at home. In the Baltics, the people and the elites vainly thought that the Third Reich would restore their independence. The Lithuanians, Latvians, and Estonians thus remained pliable to Berlin and suffered rather mildly under, under the German occupation. Many fought against the liberating Red Army. Things were different in Ukraine and Belarus. The Nazi occupation regime was fierce, exploiting the land economically, kidnapping people for slave labor and murdering many, including millions of non-Jews. Further, millions of Eastern and Central Ukrainians fought in the Soviet forces against the Germans, and many perished at the front. Some Soviet Ukrainians did collaborate with uh, uh, with the German occupiers at the lowest level of administration. Some even joined the Nazi auxiliary police forces and even uh, the SS. But there was no organized political collaboration and that which took place was usually channeled through the medium of Russian supporters of Germany. As for Western Ukrainians, former Polish citizens, they equally suffered. They equally suffered economic and labor exploitation, as well as mass executions and death in German concentration camps. However, there was political collaboration. The activists of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists certainly did try to collaborate, but they were rebuked by the Germans just like the Balts. Some of the OUN, the faction of Andriy Mielnik, continued close cooperation nonetheless. The OUN splinter group under Stefan Bandera returned underground just like during the Soviet occupation. However, the rank and file overlapped often in both OUN orientations and operated frequently uh, interchangeably. Before 1941, the OUN activists were permitted to cooperate tactically and operationally with the German military intelligence. 
their fighters were allowed to become engaged militarily against the Soviets. Eventually, the Nazis even raised and equipped a volunteer Ukrainian SS Galician division in 1943. About 60,000 volunteered, circa 15,000 saw combat against the Soviets in 1944 and 1945. Meanwhile, some Ukrainian auxiliaries were dispatched to the Western Front, a number even manned the Atlantic Wall. From 1941, some of the Ukrainian nationalists elected to join the Nazi police as SS auxiliaries. Certain of the recruits had been members of the Soviet militia, whether out of opportunism, anti-Polish animals, or other factors. Afterwards, they served in the Third Reich's auxiliary security detachment. Many of the Ukrainian policemen participated in the Holocaust at various levels as rural command post personnel and as special extermination units. They further fought Soviet and Polish guerrillas. In March 1943, the entire Ukrainian auxiliary Nazi police force in the province of Volynia deserted to the OUN forest partisan detachments. Together with the Sylvan comrades, they unleashed a massive ethnic cleansing campaign against the Polish minority. From Volynia, the slaughter spread west, ultimately grossing up to 120,000 Christian Poles. Simply having internalized the mechanics of the Holocaust, the Ukrainian extreme nationalists deployed them against the Polish neighbors. In the light of the above, it is justified to, uh, is it justified to call contemporary Ukrainian nationalists Nazis? Let's look at the roots of their ideology, in particular in Austria's Western Ukraine or Galicia. Ukrainian nationalism developed not only differently, uh, but to a much lesser extent in the Russian part of Ukraine. In Galicia, Theirs was not a universalist cultural nationalism. Theirs was a folk nationalism of a rather fresh day, late 19th century. Non-historic nations, such as Ukrainians and Belarusians, Lithuanians and others, rejected Polish-inclusive Jagiellonian nationalism and exclusive modern nationalism. Both of them invoked the heritage of the old Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, where the elite was multi-ethnic but unicultural Polish. Instead, folk nationalists tended to look to, uh, uh, to Western models of nationalism and not wax nostalgic about the historical Commonwealth that had been destroyed by Russia, Prussia, and Austria by the end of the 18th century. Unlike modern Polish nationalists, Folk nationalists of non-historic nations tended to ignore religious sources of their ideology. There was further a lack of conscious reference to conservative uh, Anglo-Saxon inspirations, in particular Edmund Burke. In addition to cruel social Darwinism, we can discern the impact of German romantic and integral nationalism, as well as various socialist forms of collectivism. Folk nationalists were impacted by the Germanic blood and soil, Blutenboden gospel, and a folkish ethnic movement, Volkische Bewegung, as well as regurgitation of Marxism. The last name 
construct served as an important ideological feature which allowed folk ethno-nationalists to marry elements of class and ethnic struggle against the so-called Polish lords. All this bred integralism. It crystallized but slowly and it articulated its articles of faith fully only following the First World War. In the Ukrainian case, this folk nationalist hybrid took on a sobriquet of active nationalism. Its ideological essence was conceptualized by former socialist Dmitry Donso. He deified the nation and rejected all traditional moral commandments in its service. Forget about God, but worship the nation. This is a recipe for neo-paganism with all its implications. Stepan Lenkowski expressed this poisonous spirit of folk nationalism best in the Decalogue of the Ukrainian nationalist. I quote, one, thou shalt conquer a Ukrainian state or thou shalt perish in the struggle for it. Seven, thou shalt not balk at carrying out the greatest crime if the good of the cause demands it. Eight, thou shalt employ hatred and deceit in hosting an enemy of your nation. For a folk ethno-nationalist, things were rather simple. His nation is the best as a homogeneous entity at all levels, linguistic, cultural, social, political, religious, and racial. He sings the pants of to his uh, particularism and attacks universalism. Sometimes he even grabs his, uh, garbs his separateness in particularist and folkloristic symbols and various myths invoking, however, contradictorily some kind of universalism. However, the Galician version of Ukrainian nationalism, out of which the organization of Ukrainian nationalists grew out, was a minority sect. In Central and Eastern Ukraine, nationalism developed sometime later and from different sources. Although the intellectuals were familiar with Western European, including German theories, it was the Russian populists, Narodniki, and the social revolutionaries who had the greatest impact on Central and Eastern Ukrainian national activists like Simon Petlyura. His brand of nationalism was folk nationalist, but not social Darwinist. His was an agrarian socialist nationalism. After 1917, Petlyura and his confederates vainly struggled to defend Ukraine's freshly gained independence from the communists. Most of the Ukrainian lands fell to Lenin's Bolsheviks. Under Stalin, Soviet Ukraine became a primary victim of Moscow's collectivization along with Kazakhstan. Millions died. The memories of such savagery seared themselves into the Ukrainian subconscious more than the wars of 1917-1921. The carnage of collectivization became the defining event of mainstream Ukrainian nationalism. It was complemented and perhaps even overshadowed. It, it has complemented and perhaps even overshadowed the Cossack myth of Bogdan Khmelnytsky with its attendant hatred of the Polish lords the tragedy of, collectiv uh, of uh, the collectivization most certainly overshadowed the myth of Bandera and the OUN. The latter remain important regional constructs of Western Ukrainian identity, but cannot compete with the old Ukrainian symbol of the Soviet mass slaughter in the countryside. 
Whereas Western Ukraine is still beholden to the myth of integral nationalism, Surzhok speaking, Surzhok speaking Central and Russian speaking Eastern Ukraine have not taken to extreme iterations of national ideology. There are exceptions naturally, including most prominently the volunteer Azov Battalion in the Southeast. It boasts of uh, neo-Nazi symbols and spews racialist ideology despite being funded by the Ukrainian Jewish oligarch Igor Kolomoisky. It's his private army. But Azov is a freak, not the norm. The cult of the OUN and OUN and Bandera is mostly a regional phenomenon. Mainstream Ukrainian nationalism is a phenomenon still in the process of forming. What shape it will ac acquire is still unknown. One thing is certain, however, the current Russian invasion has breathed new life and strength into Ukrainian nationalism. It will probably serve as a catalyst to forge an all Ukrainian nationalism out of its original manifestations. Whether the Ukrainians lose this war, which is likely or not, they will emerge much stronger, united in their hatred of Russia. And that is only to be expected of any victim of Russian imperialism. That does not make Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian nationalism Nazi. I repeat, that does not make Ukrainian nationalism Nazi. Yet it is convenient for Putin to talk about Nazis in Ukraine. Anyone opposing Russian neo-imperialism must be a Nazi. Thus, the victim is dehumanized in a classical propagandistic reductio ad Hitlerum maneuver. In this scheme of things, even President Volodymyr Zelensky is a Nazi, his Jewish roots notwithstanding. We must resist falling for outdated World War II vintage propaganda cliches that Putin spews at us. Allegedly ubiquitous Nazis in Ukraine are as real as the alleged Russian liberators of the Ukrainian people. Thank you very much. This is Marek Hadakevich at the Institute of World Politics with the Kościuszko Chair of Polish Studies and the Center of Intermarium Studies.